Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. I want to start a little differently today. Um, Let's make some orange juice. You want to? Let's make orange juice. Um, Kyle wasn't sure I should handle sharp objects on the stage, but I I assured him I could do this and not cut my finger off. Um, This is an old-fashioned, this is something that doesn't plug in. You can go get them now that are all fancy, and you plug them in, and they chew it all up, and you get all kinds of cool stuff. But I really like this this thing. This is called the Juice King. I I like that, the Juice King. So you cut your orange in half. You put it inside here, and I'm going to see if I can do this without this thing slipping off the table. Put your glass under there. Pull this lever, and then pressure hits that, that orange slice, and out the bottom comes freshly squeezed orange juice. Pretty neat. I'll do it again. How many of you have one of these? You guys are all looking at me like, what is he doing? It'll become clear in a moment, okay? And then after you've Finish that process, you have freshly squeezed orange juice, which is actually pretty good. So good, in fact, I'm going to finish this in front of you. Mm, That's good. That's good. Unless you're the orange. Right? If you're the orange, it doesn't end good for you. If you're the orange, in order for me to have orange juice, if you're the orange, you have to have the life crushed out of you to give me the orange juice. I want you to keep that in mind as I read this next passage to you. Revelation 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. Again, and then the words, first words of verse 9, I know your afflictions. The term afflictions is a term that we get from something that they did in the first century, probably way before the first century, but it's familiar to us because we, we hear about it a lot in the Bible, this, this phrase olive oil. They would get olive oil by collecting olives, putting them in a press. There were a couple of different types of presses, one had a, like a center column and a, 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 you know, like a yoke coming off of it, and they would run that through a wheel, and they would put these olives down in this trench, and they would push that wheel, and it would crush the olives, and the olive oil would run off. Another way is they would have this thing that they would kind of ratchet down, almost like a, a big screw, and, it, and they, would, they, would, you know, they would apply pressure, and as the, they, they ratcheted this thing down, the olives get crushed, and the oil runs off, and they would collect the, that very first oil that would run off whenever they would start this process, that was very precious oil. And that oil many times was used in worship services. And so they would literally crush these olives, and and out of that crushing, out of that affliction, was the word they would use to describe this crushing action. The word was flipsis, which means to be crushed under the screws. And here Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, write this message, I am the first, I am the last, I was dead, I came back to life. 
I know your afflictions. What's Jesus telling the church? He's telling the church, I know you're getting the life crushed out of you. And today when you see the words that are written to Smyrna, you're going to see words that are written to a persecuted church. When Jesus writes these words, they were being squeezed, pressed, crushed. A few words about this place we're going to look at today, Smyrna, a little about it. I'm going to show you a map. Smyrna, you see up in the top left corner, that's Italy, and the, the boot is Sicily, and then the middle landmass there at the top is Greece, and you cross the Aegean Sea, and then you come to the coast, and that is modern-day Turkey, <clears throat> and Smyrna is about 40 miles north of the, the city, the church that we looked at last week, which was, do you I remember? Ephesus, Ephesus. So there's 40 miles between the two. They're both on the port, uh, both port cities. They're on the uh, Aegean Sea, the Aegean coastline. And um, let me show you a picture of what Smyrna looks like today. Isn't that beautiful? It's a city of about 3 million people, over 3 million people. It's not called Smyrna today. It is the city of Izmir. If that name sounds familiar to you, that's because we have some very, very good friends that we just sent to Izmir. Corey and Cassidy are over there with their three kids. And um, isn't that beautiful? That's a city of over three million people. It's the third largest city in Turkey behind uh, Istanbul. Interesting thing about Istanbul I learned this week. Did you know, if I asked you, what is the number one wedding destination city in the world? Would you have said Istanbul? It's Istanbul. I'm not making that up, okay? That's the truth. That's the first, I'm sure that's, if you're planning a wedding, I'm sure that's the first place you thought about going. Let's have it in Istanbul. So Istanbul is number one, then number two is Ankara, that's the capital city. Then you come to Izmir as the number three largest city in Turkey. It's on the Aegean coast. It is a major port town. It was in, in Smyrna's day. It is even to this day. And I want to show you another picture of Izmir. Uh, you see that green thing in the middle, that little green area? That, that is the, the basically the ancient ruins of Smyrna, of what we have left of Smyrna. There's not a lot there, but uh, as you saw from the, the video, there's some stuff that you could go see. There's an aqueduct system that came in, and it's kind of neat that they've preserved some of that. Um, but, but that's in the middle of that city, and I'm told that to get to that, to be able to see it, is pretty difficult because... There's a lot of urban sprawl. You've got to go through lots of stop-start traffic. It's not easy to get to that to be able to see it. They say that in a lot of Turkey, um, some of the older ruins, if you want to go see those, you just drive up, pay your money, and you can get out and walk around. This one, they say, is a little more difficult to, to get in and out of there. Um, but, and then I want to show you the Agora. This is what I just showed you, that green in the middle. This is on one end of that looking through the Agora. This is kind of where the courthouse meets Honey Creek Mall. Okay? It's the best way to describe it. So if you, if you wanted to um, get a building permit or if you needed to get a, a you know, license your chariot or whatever it was that you were going to do in modern-day Smyrna, you, you would go to the Agora to get that done. If you needed to buy clothing, if you needed to buy um, uh, food for your family, if you needed to buy some farming utensil, you more than likely would find it at this place which was called the Agora. That's their word for the marketplace. 
And so it, it, it kind of, it was more than just shopping, it was administrative, it was a lot of stuff combined into one. There's an interesting relationship between the, the, church, the, the uh, city of Smyrna and the city that we looked at last week, the city of Ephesus. It's, it's rather interesting. They're 40 miles apart, both port cities, but they rivaled back and forth in terms of who was the better city. You know, they competed with one another. Um, <clears throat> There's a real competition between the two, mainly because of their access to water. They're both on ports. There's a lot of trade opportunities. And uh, Smyrna is also in a valley. The Hermes River ran through the the valley there where Smyrna was and emptied into the Aegean Sea. And I tell you that, you're probably thinking, this is like a geography lesson. I didn't come to church to do that, and I didn't come to church to lead you in a geography lesson either, but... I tell you all that to tell you that Smyrna was, it was known as a, this is great wine country because it's so fertile and because the, the river uh, irrigates the, the landscape. It, it had a major medical school, pretty well-known medical school, and the Christians that were living there, this is really what you need to know, the Christians that were living in the town of Smyrna were under great affliction. Things weren't going well for them. They were being crushed. They were going through an exceptionally difficult time. The word Jesus uses is the word affliction. They were having the life crushed out of them. If you were to read down to verse 9, you see the source of the persecution is the Jewish synagogue. Christianity came out of Judaism. Jesus was raised in a Jewish family. The disciples are Jewish. The first church is in Jerusalem. I mean, uh, it's the Jewish capital. So Christianity has its roots in Judaism, but um, the more they began to announce that the Messiah had, you know, was not soon coming, which is what everybody was thinking, Christians started to say, no, the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus. Well, the more they said that, the more the two began to drift and the official synagogue position began to be very vocal against the church. We come to verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those you say, who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And that sounds anti-Semitic and it, it's, you know, it sounds bad, but I would just tell you this. John, who's writing this, was Jewish. Jesus, who's speaking this to John, this is John's revelation. Jesus is the one speaking, identifies himself as the one who had died and come back to life. That's Jesus. He was raised in a Christian home. Not a Christian home. Obviously, he was raised in a Christian home. He was, uh, he was raised in, in a, a Jewish home. Basically, what he's saying is that the official synagogue position was one of slander. Let me tell you what slander is. Slander is character assassination. That's what slander is. And then later, Jesus is going to reference their affliction and their poverty. Apparently, identifying with Jesus, with the Jesus movement, was a fast road to financial ruin. If you owned a business in Smyrna and you were a Christian and word got out that you were a Christian, it probably wasn't going to end good for you. There were people that wouldn't do business with you. There are people that would maybe march or riot or, or there were, your business contacts might dry up because you, you got an X on you. It was just wasn't something that, that you, you know, it wasn't a good time to be a Christian. And in some cases, they say that these riots broke out focused on the Christian shops and businesses and, and you know, you'd have your stuff looted or confiscated or vandalized. What I'm saying is it was very difficult to be a Christian in Smyrna at this particular time. 
And so as we step into the city of Smyrna today, trying to understand what Jesus said to them, we need to understand that people were being crushed. Now, here in the Wabash Valley, it is pretty unlikely that if you announced to people that you were a Christian, if you announced that you believe in Jesus, that you identify with him, that he is your Savior, he is your Lord, it's a pretty safe bet in our day, in our culture, right here in the Wabash Valley, that you are not going to suffer much harm by making that announcement. Oh, somebody might not want to invite you to their party. We don't really consider that persecution around here, okay? You could probably say that you're a Christian and nothing bad is going to happen to you. However, or how they say, however, if you go to the right part of the world, around the right culture with the right people and the right religious environment, and you announce that you believe in Jesus, that your life is aligned with his, that you believe he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it is highly likely that harm could come to you. You know, you might lose your job. If you are a Christian business owner, you might uh, have some people who don't want to buy anything from you. If, you. if you have relatives, you might they might disown you. I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen in other parts of the world if you announce that you follow Jesus. Not that long ago, in Joseph Stalin's uh, Russia and in Mao's China, it was illegal to own one of these. And if you did own one, there were one of two things that could be said about you. A, you were very lucky if you had one of these in Mao's China or in Stalin's Russia. Because very few people had an intact Bible in those times. And so you were very lucky. In fact, you know, I've heard stories about how you, know, you might have a page or you might have half a page of a scripture and if you did, you held on to it for dear life. It was your most prized possession. I've heard stories about you know, little house churches that met underground that didn't have any kind of scripture written out but somebody might have something memorized or you know a couple people might have some Ephesians memorized and some of Titus memorized and somebody would say hey who who knows that Ephesians 2 8 passage and so and so would stand up and say I know that and he would recite it that was their Bible and so if you had a Bible in one of those two countries you were one very lucky because not very many people had it number two you were at risk because you could do serious time for having a Bible Christians met underground in secrecy. And and you just have to get your head around this fact that the world that Smyrna knew is that world, that it wasn't a safe place to be a Christian. You could get in trouble by claiming the name of Jesus. And people were literally getting life crushed out of them because of their connection to Jesus. Affliction. They were being crushed, they were being squeezed. And pressed. And I'm just thinking today that it's possible that somebody has walked in here today. And, and what they would say is, Brett, you know, I don't want anybody to know this, and I'm trying to not let anybody know, but but I that I identify with that juicer. You know, when you squeeze the juice out of that orange, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly what's going on with me. I can identify with with the pressure that comes with all of that. Right now, we just feel like the life's getting crushed out of us, and I just wonder how many in the room, not by show of hands, don't raise your hand, but I'm just wondering, how many feel that way? Some of you would say, you know, Brett, I know it's hard times for some people, but we're doing okay. I mean, we're we're living in a time of surplus. We're, We're comfortable. We're, 
You know, money's coming into our house. We don't really have, I mean, we got the problems any other American family would have. We, we, we want more than we can afford, but we're doing okay. You know, we, we, it's all wants for us. And then others would come in and say, no, it's, it's awful. We don't have anything. We're, we, you know, the situation that we were in five years ago was great. Times have changed, and we've had to adjust, and the adjustments have been very difficult for us and our family, and, and, and we, we, it's just not the same. For some of you, medical things have gotten in the way and have caused a problem, and now you feel squeezed or you feel like something's crushing you. And so the question that we're asking today is, what in the world is Jesus going to say to this church that's getting the life crushed out of it? And there's a chance that some of what he says to them might be helpful for us. Will there there be something that we can cling to? Will there be something that when we feel like the life's getting crushed out of us that we can draw from, that we can say, you know, I identify with that? Revelation 2.8, again. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. This is Jesus identifying himself. And I want you to notice how he's going to identify himself next. Who died and came to life again. This is the resurrected Jesus speaking. It's very important that you recognize that. And you ask yourself the question, of all the different ways that Jesus could have identified himself, of all the different words that we could use and have used to describe Jesus, and we sing songs that reference Jesus in all different manner, he uses some interesting words. I am him who died and came to life again. He says, okay, I'm the one that was dead. I came to life. That's who's speaking to you. This is a hint of what is to come. Because what Jesus is saying here is, for me, and oh, by the way, death wasn't the end of me. Death didn't stop me. It didn't get the final word with me. And already there's this hint that in the story of Jesus, death does not get the final word. And in a very real sense, death will be swallowed up by life. He says, I am the one who was dead and came back to life. And then the powerful words of verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Then you get this, yet you are rich. I know your poverty, yet you are rich. I wonder if some of the people in Smyrna cried when they heard that. I wonder if the reality of being in poverty, and I wonder if the reality of, of just not having peace sometimes, you know, just not being able to breathe. You know, that's how you feel when you get crushed. It's just like, I can't even breathe. I just wonder if when they heard that, some of them cried. Jesus says to the church that's getting crushed, I know what's going on, and and, and I want you to know that I know. I know your poverty. I know your affliction. I know that it's because of your connection to me. I know your affliction and poverty. Jesus is speaking to the church that's getting crushed, and he's saying here, listen, I know there are nights that you put your kids in bed, and they're going to bed hungry. I know that. I know that there are times when it gets cold that you don't have enough clothes. I know that the clothes you have are probably worn out. I know you're afflicted. I know your poverty. I understand. I know what you're going through. He says, I know you're being crushed. And I know he was writing or speaking to them, but 
I would just plead with you, those of you who are in a season where you would say, you know, that's kind of me. I feel like life's just getting, it's just getting crushed out of me. I, I just pray that you would receive these words from Jesus, that you would hear him say, I know what's going on in your world. I know. I know your depression. I know your hardship. I know your discouragement. I know your finances. I know your relationship issues. I know what you're experiencing. And if you feel like life's getting crushed out of you, I know what that's like too. So just hear those words. I know your affliction and your poverty. But did you see how that verse ended? I know your afflictions and poverty, yet you are rich. And I don't, it's not talking about money. I know your poverty, yet you're rich. I don't think he's talking about money here. I think he's talking about the kind of thing that's not money, the kind of wealth that's not, you know, we wouldn't measure that by dollars and cents. I think what he's talking about here is the ability to have joy in those kind of circumstances. And when we're getting crushed, that there is a wealth in that, that being financially challenged and yet being generous with the stuff that we have, that there's a wealth in that. That if he's talking about this ability to grieve and hurt and at the same time lift praise to God, and maybe some of you have come in here and that's what you've done, that there's wealth in that. There's a wealth in the ability to go through this kind of hardship and still praise the Lord. And I read those words, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. And there's something in me that says, I want that. I want want that. I want to be at my best when the situation is at its worst. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And I say, wait a minute. (laughs) Just because somebody's nasty to me doesn't mean I have to be nasty back. Just because somebody gossips about me doesn't mean that I have to talk about them, doesn't mean that I have to gossip about them. And just because somebody slanders my name doesn't mean that I have to slander theirs or that I have to return that kind of activity in kind. Do you know what I hope we learn from this today? Here's what I hope we learn. I hope that we learn from Smyrna how to suffer well. How to suffer well. I need to kick out the inner whiner that takes residence in my spirit. Is that you? There's this dude that has taken up a corner office in my heart, and he will complain in a heartbeat, right? We've got to evict him. He's got to get kicked out. You go through a little hardship and, you know, oh, woe's me. I, I work with somebody and I love them dearly. And, and they go through some, you know, horrible headaches and you know, life's not easy for them. And, and, and I watch it from a distance and they, they don't complain. And, and quite honestly, I'm shamed sometimes by how tough they are. And I think, man, I wish I was like that. I want to be like that. I want to go through the day with all the headaches and stresses that life can deal out and still be able to be generous to the people around me, to still be able to give, to still be able to serve, to still be able to hold my head high and do what I need to do and serve people. Don't you? Don't you want to suffer well? 
I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Jesus says there is a wealth that has nothing to do with money. You're a poor church, but you're wealthy. The church at Smyrna was just getting crushed. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you don't need to look this up, but Paul's writing, and, and this is written significantly before this Revelation passage that we're looking at today. He says something interesting in 2 Corinthians. I want you to hear this. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. I love that. Paul's writing to his friends in Corinth, in Greece. and, and, and You know where he's writing from, where they think he's writing from? They think he's writing from Ephesus. He's just about 40 miles south of Smyrna, and he's saying, beaten? Yeah, but they haven't killed us. Dying, and yet we still live on. Poor, yet we're making many rich. So, Paul, when you walk into a town, you know, you go into a new town, you're going to, you know, do this missionary thing that you're doing. What do you have? Paul would say, well, not a lot. I got a coat. I got a little bit of bread. Is that it? Well, no, I got the message of Jesus who died and sacrificed himself for us, poor, yet making many rich. He says, we got nothing, yet we possess everything. I love that. I want that kind of attitude. How do you do that? That's the question. How do you do that? How do you go through a season of life that just crushes you, a season of intense grief, intense depression, hardship, real challenges at work, questions about your character, and yet be wealthy internally to the point that you would say, it's a mess, but I'm whole and I'm well. How do you do that? Jesus is about to give us two encouragements in verse 10. The first one is kind of a negative. It's something that he doesn't want us to do. The second one is something that he does want us to do. Verse 10, uh, what not to do. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I don't like that. That doesn't sound good to me. I wish he would say, do not be afraid. You are not going to suffer. That's what I want that passage to say. That's not what it says. I mean, it sounds pretty certain to me. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. It's, you know, that kind of harkens back to when Dad took off the belt and said, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. No, 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 no. I'm pretty sure it's not. But you know as the belt comes off and he says those words, you're about to suffer, right? I mean, this is going to hurt. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Get ready. You are going to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. That sounds kind of cryptic, doesn't it? And he gives us a time frame, ten days. And you say, well, ten days, that's not too bad. I can handle ten days. I think ten days, ten days is a figurative thing here. I don't think it should be taken too literally. I think it's, it means it's a limited time. It's going to be a very intense time. This persecution, Smyrna, you're getting the life crushed out of you, I know, but it's not going to last forever. 
going to come, it's going to go, you're going to pass through this time of affliction, it's going to be intense, it's going to hurt, it's going to crush you, and then it's going to be over. I think that's what the 10 days is all about. Temporary but intense type of thing. And it says, it's going to be short, you know, 10 days. And we think, well, that's not too bad. I can handle jail time for 10 days. No, 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 no. See, jail's different for us than it was for them. Jail is for us is a place we send people to punish them. You steal a car, we send you to jail. You know, you, you do bad things to people, we send you to jail. Their jail was, you're sitting in jail while they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with you, and it could be they're going to kill you. So you sit in jail and wait so that you won't run away. So for them, being in jail any length of time is not a good thing because it means they're contemplating your fate. And they're told, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Refuse to live in fear. That's powerful. If you're in a season where the life is being crushed out of you and you hear those words, do not be afraid, it's a powerful thing because fear can paralyze you. It can prevent you from accomplishing your most significant tasks, your most important roles. Fear can just lock you up. I've heard before, I've never counted myself, I I don't know that I could say this with great certainty, but I've heard this more than once, that the, the, the phrase, the command, don't be afraid, do not be afraid, is one of the most oft-repeated phrases in the Bible, one of the most oft-repeated commands in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Abraham heard that, Joshua heard that, Moses, who preceded Joshua, and understand, things did not go well for Moses, okay? Uh, Moses was criticized, threatened, talked about, yelled at. I think they wanted to kill him at one point. And you get to Joshua 1. Joshua takes over after Moses is done. The first thing you read that's being said to Joshua is, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. Joshua, be strong. Don't be afraid. The first words to the woman, the women on the way to the tomb, when they, when they discover the empty tomb, the angel there says, don't be afraid. And again, it, it, the fear will just lock you up, and it won't, sometimes it just won't let you move. It won't let you do what you should do. King David lived about a thousand years before Jesus. Not only was he a king, he was an author, he was a, he was a songwriter, he was a lyricist, and one of his great songs is the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. We love that. You come to verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. Do not be afraid. I refuse to live in fear. If you're in a season right now where you feel like the life is being crushed out of you, you'd say, Brett, we're just getting creamed. Receive those words from Jesus. Do not live in fear. Do not be afraid. And maybe the first prayer that you might offer today would be, Jesus, please deliver me from the anxiety. Deliver me from the fear that wants to come up in me. Help me to overcome that. Help me to be able to focus on the things I need to focus on. Don't let the fear keep me from doing what I'm needed to do. 
That is the first thing the church at Smyrna is told to do as the life's getting crushed out of them. Do not be afraid for what you're about to suffer. That's what they're told not to do. Don't be afraid. What they're told to do, two words at the end of verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Those of you who are going through seasons where the life is being crushed out of you, I have two things to say to you. Do not be afraid and be faithful. It's interesting, though. He says, be faithful even to the point of death. Even if they go around killing some of you, you be faithful. And I will give you a crown of life. I'm going to, so, you know, you hear that. Be faithful even if they're killing you, and I'm going to give you a crown of life. My response to that is, great, I get killed, I get a hat. That's what I read in that. That better be some hat, right? They're going to kill me, but I get a hat. We'll talk about that in a minute. Be faithful. What does that look like to you? What does it look like to go through life and have life crushed out of you and be faithful? I know what unfaithfulness looks like to me. I just will share that with you. When I'm getting crushed. Unfaithfulness to me means that I will not go on the war path when everybody else or someone else goes on the war path. I just won't do it. That's being faithful. It's not getting nasty because somebody else got nasty. Wallowing in what's happening to the extent that I let bitterness take root, that's being unfaithful. He says, you be faithful. Keep moving. Keep doing the right thing. You be faithful even in a season when you are getting crushed. Some of us would confess that in those depressing, discouraging seasons when you feel like you're just getting the life crushed out of you, that there is a propensity to kind of zone out, right? When you're going through that and you just think, oh man, I just, I just want the world to go away. Jesus says, no, no. Be faithful and I will give you a crown of life. Notice the word life. I will give you a crown of life. This death and life motif is there. In fact, this me- that's the way this message is going to end with the final verse Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's like Jesus is saying, cross lane, I want you to tune in to what I'm saying to the church at Smyrna because what I'm saying to the church at Smyrna has application for you. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Here's that life-death thing again. I will give you a crown of life and the second death will not touch it. Just understand that this message ended with a life and death deal. And it started with a life and death deal. In Revelation, you read, the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. At the end, it's be faithful, and I will give you a crown of life. The one who's victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. There's this life and death deal. I, uh, I was at a family reunion yesterday. I saw people I hadn't seen in forever. You know? and, and one of the things that's always prevalent at a family reunion are cameras. And I don't think they make cameras anymore that don't have a zoom feature on them, right? I mean, every camera has a zoom feature. It's a great thing. You can zoom in and get a tree. You can back it out and you can get a tree and a pasture. And you can really back it out and you can get the tree and the pasture and the horse barn and the house. 
And you're like, that's cool how I can how I can do that. Whenever life is getting crushed out of you, there's a tendency to zoom into the place where the crushing is all we see. Whatever the problem is, that's what we see. And it just kind of, you know, it kind of minimizes to the crushing that's taken place. Listen to me. If you're in a season where you're getting crushed, you need to set down what's being crushed, and you need to zoom out. You need to pan out. You need to get a bigger perspective. And as you pan out and you begin to see, you know, God may be using this crushing in my life in ways that I don't even know. He may be preparing me for something down the road. I don't know. He he may be trying to teach me something or do something in me. All I can see is the mess. No, no, zoom out. And see if God is up to something good. I don't know what it is right now, but what if he's up to something good in my character? What if he's up to something good in my faithfulness? You will only see it as you zoom out. And then zoom out really wide and make sure you get the picture really wide enough to fit the cross into the picture. Because he was crushed too. The story of the cross is the story of a creator stepping into his own creation. And the story of the crucifixion is that he willingly takes the crushing for us. Jesus knew betrayal. He had faithful friends that denied him at the end. He had someone that sold him out for money. And when your heart is broken and you're crushed and you don't, want to take another step, and you look to heaven to vent, and you say, do you have any idea what I'm going through? The answer that will come back in that question is, yes. Yes, I do have an idea of what you're going through. You're not the first person who's ever been crushed. You're not the first person who's ever been betrayed or abandoned. You're not the first person who's ever thought one thing was going to happen and something else happened. Yes, I do. Not only did I go through excruciatingly physical pain, but I know what it is to be abandoned. I know what it is to be betrayed. I know what it is to experience desertion. I know. God knows. He was there. And he didn't just get killed. The Bible says that he laid down his life. Laid it down. There's a willingness to that. And it's, it's, it's him reaching down to me when I can't reach up to him. That's what's going on on the cross. It's, it's God would say, those thousands of wrongs that you have done, I don't need to punish you for those. They've already been punished. You have a substitute sufferer. In Christ, he took the heat already, received that. That's what it means to have a Savior. That's what it means to have a rescuer. Zoom out. Make sure the cross is in the picture. When I see the cross, I am less likely to live in fear and more likely to be faithful. Zooming in makes me live in fear. Zooming out makes the fear dissipate. When you give your life to Christ, you become a part of the story where crushing does not get 
the final word. See, if you're going through that today, here's what I can tell you. It's not going to be, that's not going to be what defines you. At the end of your life and at the end of your existence, that, that crushing, whatever you're experiencing now, that's not going to be the thing that defines you. Let's end with the crown. Be faithful, second part of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Forty miles south of Smyrna was Ephesus, and every five years in Ephesus, they would have an Olympic Games. Every five years in Smyrna, they would have an Olympic Games where they would have running and javelin and discus throw and, and um, boxing and wrestling and, and, my personal favorite, running in armor. You'd put on your armor and you'd run. And you trained and trained. And then you traveled to the games and, and to represent your city. And if you ended up being the best in your particular discipline, they put you on a podium and they honored you. And you brought honor to the entire city and village that you came from. And you would bend down and they would not put over your head a, a ribbon or a medal like we do today. They would put on your head a wreath. It was made out of olive branch twigs or made out of laurel. That's where we get the phrase, resting on our laurels. And they would put that on your head. I have a picture to show you. I don't know if you know it or not, but that dude in the middle is a really good swimmer. That guy can move in the water. It's Michael Phelps. That's uh, him being honored for one of the many medals that he's won in his lifetime and one of the many that he won in the Athens 2004 Olympics. And you can see that they've got medals around their neck, but they also have this thing on their head. That's, that, is a, that is to pay homage to the Olympic Games that took place in that region of the country 2,000 years ago, and they were trying to draw attention to it. Jesus tells these people who are getting the life crushed out of them, be faithful. There will come a day when I will honor you and I will reward you and I will give you a crown which is life and it will be better than any gold medal you would put around your neck or any wreath that you would put on your head. That was language that spoke to these people. They understood the Olympic Games. They understood that. Knowing that can push fear out. Knowing that this thing, whatever it is you're going through, is not going to be the end for you, it can push fear out. It can help you get through it. You say, but Brett, the grief is real. My financial trouble is real. My relationship trouble is real. My depression is real. I, I know that. I'm not minimizing what you're going through. I know it's very real. I just know it's not all there is. There's more to your life than the crushing. You have to zoom out. And when we do, the fear will dissipate. And you will know a peace, and you'll see the cross, and you'll know, I have a Savior. I have someone who is a sufferer in my place, and this is a temporary thing that I'm going through. Let's pray together. Father, I give you thanks for Jesus. He is our sufferer. He is the one who has taken what we deserve on himself. He did it willingly. I'm still blown away by that. And Father, there are gobs of people, I'm sure, that have walked through these doors this morning and as I've talked about the crushing, there's something that's going through their mind. 
there's something that they would say, yeah, I, I know that, I know that. that. That thing he's talking about, that juicer, that's me. And Lord, I don't know what those things are. The, the real comfort I take this morning is you know what they are. You know what they are. You know what we need. You know what you're doing in us. And so, Father, this morning, we just collectively, we gather together as a group of people that are broken. We don't have it all figured out. All kinds of stuff going on with us. All here to worship you together. All here to just really experience what it is to have peace in Jesus. So, Father, the crushing, whatever it is for the people in the room, I pray that you would help them to zoom out pan out so far that their picture now includes the cross and they're able to see oh yeah Jesus loves me this I know God you are so good to us we love you for it it's in Jesus name we pray